Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. We begin a series today called Three Beautiful Words, and you're going to have to bear with me. I'm, I'm thinking today might be a, quite a bit of a challenge for me um, because I just feel, it's not happened every day, but I feel very overwhelmed with God's love today. So I woke up this morning. It doesn't happen every morning, but I woke up this morning and had this overwhelming sense of Emmanuel next to me on my pillow. Just God and His goodness and grace and mercy, His presence alongside of us. Jesus said, I will never, no, not never, leave you nor forsake you. And you heard a testimony today of someone who was invited. They were invited. We're going to look at three different words, three different statements over these three weeks. And I'm really, really excited about what God would speak to you. But I also want to let you know we're, we're doing something brand new today. And that is in the back of your seat, there is a card that says Sunday Q&A. There's also a QR code on the screen And if you scan that QR code, there will be a link that will say Sunday Q&A. And from this this day forward, what we're going to be doing is basically content curating all of the questions that you have as a result of the message on Sunday. We'll take those on Sunday night once they're submitted, and then we will film those. Myself and Pastor Chad on Monday, we're so grateful for Hudson Hancock and Hit Network where he he works. We're going to film those on Monday, and then they're going to premiere every Wednesday at noon. So when you take a lunch break on Wednesday, you get to hear responses to what God spoke to you that previous Sunday. And so whatever questions you have about the message, whatever God stirs in your heart, you can take this card, fill it out, take it to the next steps table, or if you'd like to do it digitally, you can do it at the link there on our link tree as well. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open the Gospel of John, John chapter 9, and we're going to work through John chapter 9, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Again, welcome those that are streaming live this morning. I want to say on behalf of my wife and I how grateful we are to your love, for your love and appreciation for pastor appreciation last Sunday and the gifts that you bestowed on us. Thank you from the bottom of our heart. We are so blessed. We love this community, committed to this community, and uh, are so grateful for the people that God is using and uh, this fellowship that God is knitting together. What a privilege. Some of you may remember years ago on television a man by the name of Art Linkletter. Anybody remember that name, Art Linkletter? He now died, right? He's now passed. He hosted a, whole, a program called Kids Say the Darndest Things. And they had little excerpts of kids and different issues of different experiences on the show. And, and kids are cute, what they come up with, right? How they see life. Pretty adorable. I've discovered over years that, God, that, that kids don't just say the, the craziest things. They say some pretty amazing things, too. So I have a little book, I actually have a couple little books in my library that I've used as a sort of illustration. One's called Kids' Prayers to God. And uh, for instance, I'll give you one. A little girl named Joyce was talking to God and she said, Dear God, thanks for my little brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) Now, how do you like that kind of honesty, right? Another little boy said, Hey God, could you just stick another holiday between Christmas and Easter because nothing is good there right now. Kids live for the holidays, right? When it comes to questions that people have of God, kids grow up and become adults. Their issues, their observations, their prayers become so much more profound than that. 
could you just give me a better holiday to celebrate? In fact, by the time you come of 18 years of age and you become an adult, we've already wrestled with some of the deepest issues that bring about the greatest tensions in our life. One of the things I've now learned two decades of Christian ministry is every person, almost every person I've ever met, the question they want to ask God, if they could ask Him any question, is why, God, do you allow evil to exist? Why do you allow it? What are you going to do, God, about the enormity of hell and evil that has dominated human history? What are you going to do about the enormity of evil in my family? Why do you allow it? Why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you stop the abuse? Why didn't you stop the challenge? And it's an issue that's been wrestled with, with people on earth ever since people have had life. Because Jesus even gave us an observation that the sun shines on the just and the unjust. It rains on the just and the unjust. That is good and bad. Good things and bad things. Good and evil happen to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Now that is issue is given its own category in the study of theology. We call it theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Theodicy. Theodicy and theology is struggling with how a good God, a powerful God, allows evil to exist. When you see evil and you go, hey, what about that? I have a real problem with that. And perhaps there's no greater problem or challenge to believing in God than dealing with the problem of evil. It's a huge issue. Barna did a poll last year, 2021, and he did a poll asking people the question, if you could ask God any question, what would it be? 98%, why does God allow evil to exist? The Greek philosopher struggled with it. His name was Epicurus. Epicurus said if God is willing to prevent evil, but he's unable to do so, then he's not all-powerful. If God's able to prevent evil, but he's not willing to do so, then he's not all-loving. So how can an all-loving, all-powerful God allow evil to exist? I say all of that to set you up for Jesus healing a man with blindness. And we don't often do this, but we're going to do it today because I want you to get the whole context of the passage. So let's stand together and let's read John chapter 9 together. John chapter 9. I'm going to begin in verse uh, verse 1. We're going to work through this text together. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he was passing by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it's day, for night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva in his mouth, and spread the mud on the blind man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit down begging? Some divided, said he's the one. Others were saying, No, he looks like him. But he kept saying, I'm the one, I'm the one, I'm the one, I'm the one. Look at me, I'm I'm the one. So they asked him, Then how were your eyes open? Well, he answered the man, called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. And that day, the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. And the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. I've already told you. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God. Not this man with the blind man, the man who actually healed the man. Because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? Look at the conflict. And there was a division even among the Pharisees. And again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received his sight until they summoned the parents of the man who was born blind. And they asked him, is this your son, the one who you say he's born blind? How then does he say 
We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he sees. And we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. We're not getting involved in the conflict. We're staying out of this. He'll speak for himself. Go ask him. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed. It's called Asphalt Symposium, which literally means kicked out of the temple. That if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said he's of age. Ask him. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know the man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I, I don't know. I have no idea. One thing I do know, I was blind yesterday. I can see today. Verse 26. They ridiculed him. You're the, um, I'm sorry, next, next slide. They ridiculed him saying, you're the man, that man's disciple. Well, we're Moses' disciples. We know God's spoken to Moses. But this man, we don't know where he's from. This, this is Jesus. This is an amazing thing. The man told them, you don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone's God-fearing and does his will, he listens to it. Next slide. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. And are you trying to teach us, boy? Then they threw him out. Jesus heard they had thrown the man out. He heard they had thrown the man out. He heard they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, who is he, sir? I'd like to believe in him. Where is he? I don't see him. Next slide. Jesus answered, I am he. You've seen him. In fact, he's the one talking to you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, I came into the world, watch this revelation, for judgment, in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Last slide. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said, we aren't blind too, are we? If we, you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin, but now that you see... Now that you say, we see your sin remains. Isn't that a great story? It's a bizarre story. It should actually make you laugh a little bit. Let's pray. Thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for opening up space for us at Dwelling Place Church to gather together, to see one another, to hear one another, to encourage one another. We ask one thing, Lord, that you would shape us to be the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Gospel of John opens with at least two astounding claims. We have to, as Christians, reacquaint ourselves again and again because these two claims are basic to our understanding of the faith. The first astounding claim that is made in John's Gospel is that Jesus is the revelation of God both to God and to us. Jesus is the revelation of God both to God and to us. We are told in the very opening verses of the prologue, verse 1 through 18 of John chapter 1 is a prologue. It was a hymn that was later, later added. In the beginning, the Word, who is God, is with God. And that Word, verse 14, has come and taken on flesh and blood and taken up space and time, and He has tabernacled among us. He has, he has visited us, which is a way of saying that this Word, this revelation... The fullness is there for God, and the fullness is there for us. Listen to me. When God wants to know what God is like, He looks at His own Word. When we want to know what God is like, we look at the same Word. So that what God knows of God and what we know of God are the same. That's the whole purpose of Jesus Christ. The whole distinct baseline purpose of the, what we call the incarnation is that so what God knows about God and what we know about God is the exact same. 
That when we look at God and we see Jesus, the fullness of God, God is revealing God to God and God is revealing God to us. That way, God and what he knows of God and what we know of God can be the exact same thing. There is not something behind the revelation we've been given that we've yet to learn. The fullness of God is in Jesus Christ. That's the first astounding claim of John's gospel. Second astounding claim. We can be like Jesus. We can be like Jesus. We can be so joined to his life, so share in his identity that we can be who and what he exactly is. We are told again, opening verses of John chapter 1, he, the word, is God and he is with God. And then later in John 14 verse 1, he tells the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and get you. What? That where he, who the Father is, you might be too. Where is he? Well, for the last hundred years, we have butchered John 14 and we said, where is he? Heaven. Do not think heaven. How did John start his gospel? Jesus is where? With the Father. So what is Jesus promising? You're going to be with the Father. Don't think heaven. Don't think a sweet by and by. Don't think a place. He says, where I am, you're going to be also. Where is he? He is with God. He is the fullness of God's character. That is what Jesus prays for us. That is what Jesus desires for us. That's what Jesus has made possible for us through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And that's why we are here. To become that kind of people. People who know know Jesus as the fullness of God and in our sharing together of his life become like him. So people always ask me, why is John your favorite book in the Bible? John is the favorite book in the Bible because the whole gospel now has one point. It is a story meant to draw your attention to do facts. As we contemplate what happens with Jesus, we are seeing the fullness of God. And as we reflect on who he is and what he's doing, we begin to become like him. So the story we're going to read today, which is what we just read in John 9, is again showing us how Jesus is the fullness of God. And then what God does this morning is he invites dwelling place to contemplate who he is in John 9. And when we contemplate who he is, we begin to share in it. John 9 becomes your story before you walk out those doors in just a little bit. That's the whole gospel. So what I want to do again this morning is read the story again, and I want you to be thinking, this is what God is like. I thought I knew what God was like, but this is what God is like. This is the fullness of God. This is what God looks like under our human conditions. This is how God operates. Now, we start reading in John chapter 9, verse 1, where it says, As he walked along, he sees a blind man. As he walked along, he sees a blind man. But in the previous chapter, we're told there has been a dramatic conflict. Jesus has not stoned a woman caught in the act of adultery. In fact, he has forgiven her. He has sent her on his way. And then now, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus looks at all that are gathered together. And I want you to see this. This is in uh, John chapter 8. They're going to show it on the, the screen. Jesus declared this statement. He said, before Abraham was... I am. Jesus declared, before Abraham was, I am. Which is an odd thing to say. It's a very kind of weird thing to say. He makes some kind of claim to pre-existence. And he was met with strange looks. They are befuddled. What do you mean? 
Abraham has been dead for a couple of hundred years, and we know who your parents are. We changed your diaper. You grew up in Capernaum. What do you mean before Abraham was? He's already dead before you came into the earth. And so the Bible says the next text, they took up stones to kill him. So they're not just befuddled. They are flat angry at what he is claiming because either he's insane and he's lost his mind or he is claiming some kind of intimacy with God that no human being, especially an Israelite, should ever claim. So they pick up stones to kill him either for his lunacy or his blasphemy. You pick your choice, but we're going to kill you. And the text says, he hid himself and passed through the midst of them. He hid himself and passed right through them. We don't know exactly what that means. Commentators try to do a lot with that text, but somehow he kept them from seeing him and he passed through them. And then immediately he sees a blind man. Did you get the image? Don't you miss the image? There's no, there's no chapter and break and verse break when John writes his gospel. So it messes you up in your mind. A Jesus who can't be seen sees someone else no one sees. Jesus who can't, can't be seen by humans sees someone no one else can see. This, my friends, is what God is like. The one who cannot be seen, the one who is hidden, seeing what is hidden from the rest of us. The text says, as he walked along, who? The hidden one. As he walked along, he saw a man. He saw a man. No one else sees this man. This man is a beggar. This man is marginalized. His own family holds him at the margins. They expect, no doubt, because he is blind, that he has sinned in some way. That's what his family thinks. So not only the power brokers of the world and society, but his own family do not see the man. And yet Jesus sees the man. Jesus sees. Now we know from the story, we read it, that the man's going to be healed, but it is absolutely essential. Listen to me, church. It is absolutely essential that you realize this man is not healed because of his faith. This man is not healed because of his obedience. He is not healed because he sought Jesus out. We have stories of people in the Gospels who hear about Jesus' miracles, and they come and they seek out one of their own, but not in this case. In this case, you don't have a man who has any faith. In this case, you don't have a man who has one desire. You don't have a man who wants Jesus. You don't have a man who wants to see. You don't have a man who wants to have eyesight. In this case, you have a blind man begging for coins. Jesus sees him, and before the man can say a word, or before the man even knows Jesus is there, Jesus is ready to heal him. Why? Because this is what God is like. Long before you saw God, long before you called on God, long before you had a desire for God, long before you knew you were blind, long before you knew you were diseased, much less you came and submitted to God, God sees you. The one no human can see sees the human that no other humans see. This is what God is like. God sees what no one else sees. Now, in some places, we have talked about God's sight in ways that are frightening. We, we do this, especially in the evangelical church. We think of God, we tell our kids, God is like a surveillance system. That he knows what you do in secret, he's watching you at all times. But that is not, friends, how God sees anywhere in Scripture. God sees your humanity when no one else sees your humanity. 
God sees you as a person when no one else sees you as a person. God's vision of you is not exposure. God does not expose you. God does not expose people. His vision of you does not strip you bare. Listen to me. Next slide. God's vision of you is not surveillance. It's intimate acquaintance. That's God's vision of people. He knows you. And he sees you. See, all of us in this room at some point, all of us to be human is to need to be seen, to need to be known. You all have been in these intense moments where you're in conflict in your emotions and you try to speak to somebody about what you're going through. You try to communicate your heart to them. You try to communicate to a leader in your life. You try to communicate to somebody you love, your spouse, and the other person just can't hear you. They can't see you. They can't, you cannot get out adequately what you want them to get from you. Let me tell you something this morning. God is the one who sees you and God is the one who hears you and he understands what you can't even put into words about yourself. He understands what your experience is mentally and emotionally that you can't even give voice to to the people who love you. Jesus sees the man, but notice the disciples do not see the man. What did the disciples see? The disciples see that this man is a point of discussion about the problem of evil. The disciples make the man who is suffering with a blindness a point of discussion rather than an object of compassion. Now please mark that. We're so used to doing that. I want to get into a theological discussion about the problem of evil. Well, there's a place for that. There's a place to talk about the theological problem of evil. But there comes a point when you must ask yourself, what are you doing to help alleviate suffering? Do you see the people around you as topics of discussion and points of discussion or objects of compassion? Jesus does not see them as points of discussion. He sees a man. The disciples can't see the man. They see what they have been told to see about blind men. They don't see the man. They see his blindness. And they see it through the filter of all that they have been taught about how disease and handicap like this actually come. So they come to Jesus and they say, who sinned? They ask this man, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? Now you need to know something else, okay? So this makes sense. Some of the Jewish people 2,000 years ago, the Pharisees believed in something called, we know now as prenatal sin. Hence the question, did this man sin or his parents? How, how you sin, how can you sin to be born blind? Well, they taught, Hebrews taught you could actually sin in the womb. Now it goes back, I don't have time to flesh it all out. I'm not going to belabor you with all the philosophy. But some of the Greek philosophers had infiltrated the Jewish faith and they taught that in the, what we call the pre-existence of the soul and the ability to do evil deeds or good deeds. There was an idea in Jewish theology that a pre-born infant could actually sin in the womb. You say, Craig, where did they get that from? When the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says, God says, sin is crouching at your door and its desires for you. Well, they interpreted that to be the door of the womb called the birth canal. Before that baby is born, there is the possibility that the soul, which is the pre-born infant, could actually sin. So that whatever defect it had was due to the sin it committed before it was born. That is insane. It's not true. But it was a belief. So they come and they say, who in the world sinned? Was it this man? Or was it his parents? And notice, they must have been so proud. Y'all, I've taught theology for years and I... I see the kind of pride students have when they ask good questions. The disciples must have been so proud. We're, they're so broad-minded here. 
They're so kind as to offer Jesus two suggestions. We don't want to be judgmental. And we don't want to be like the Pharisees. So we know it might not have been this man's sin. But was it his parents' sin? Folks, that is the problem with the way we see the world. We don't see one another. We see one another through the filters of what we've been told cause the conditions. We don't see the poor. We see people who aren't working hard enough, dadgummit. Let's get to another election cycle. We don't see those who are losing their marriage. We see people who aren't willing to do what it takes to make it through. We don't see people who are sick and suffering. We just see people who just quite honestly don't have enough faith. If they had enough faith, they'd come to Jesus and he would heal them. And then when we are in that situation, we can feel that kind of judgment happen to us. When you're the one suffering, oh, come on, let me just preach for a moment. When you're the one suffering, then all of a sudden you can sense in their tone of voice and you can sense by the look on their face, oh, yeah, they're sympathizing with you up to a point, but often there's a level in them that's hidden in reserve where they're thinking, well, yeah, but if you really wanted out of this situation, if you really would open up your life to God, if you were really serious about your marriage or if you're really serious about getting off this drug or if you're really serious about getting off this alcohol, if you were really serious about changing your way of life it could happen but that's not how Jesus sees Jesus looks at your humanity and he sees the man we don't see men we see conditions that's why we're unlike Jesus we see what we've been told to believe about the conditions we live in Jesus sees a man the disciples see a disease a handicap, a stigma, a judgment, an aura. Jesus responds, he says, neither this man nor his parents have sinned. In other words, bad question, disciples. Don't be proud, you're asking the wrong question. Neither his parents nor he sinned. And then he makes a statement, watch this. This sickness is for the glory of God. Now let me say something and don't miss this. That does not mean that God made him to be blind just so later God could open his eyes. If I've heard that one time preached in 20 years, I've heard that a thousand. That is a parlor trick and that is antichrist. That is antithetical to the nature of God. God does not do something with his left hand so that he can prove his glory in the future, inflict suffering on humans so that he can with his right hand make it right and get glory. That is not the nature of God. That is not what's happening in this passage and that's not what's being said by Jesus. He didn't make this man blind so it would give Jesus an opportunity to show what he could do. That is a parlor trick, folks. When it says this sickness is for God's glory, what it means is this man Man's brokenness is the very condition for God's will to be done on earth. It's only in conditions like this where God and his touch will come. Not that God gives him blindness. Blindness happens. That's called life. Now listen to me, church. Focus in right here. Until the very end of all things, you and I every day have to keep this distinction between what happens in the world and what God is doing and what's happening. So there's what's happened. There's what, there is what happens. Some people prosper, some people don't. Some people are quote-unquote healthy, some people are not. Some people don't make it through COVID, some people do make it through COVID. That's what happens. You, you need to follow me. Some people are, are diagnosed with cancer at a young age, some people are not diagnosed with cancer at a young age. That's what happens. But what we are supposed to see is what is God doing and what is happening. 
So what Jesus sees here is a man born blind, not because God made him blind, but because that's the kind of thing that happens in our world. But that blindness and the judgment that comes with it in society, and it's both of those. You get, the, you get not only the handicap, but you get the judgment, the stigma of people on you and looking at you. He says that though both of those are the very condition for God to act. Because listen to me, church, God is only interested in doing what will reveal the ways in which his love is at odds with what we think matters. So we just finished the book of Romans. What does Paul do over and over and over and over and over and over again? He says this word, Christ dies for the ungodly. He only comes for us while we are sinners. Look at me, church. He only seeks lost sheep. He only raises the dead. So if you are not a sinner, if you are not dead you are not a lost sheep, or you are an enemy of God, there's no hope for you. There is only hope for you if you are diseased. There's no hope for you if you see. There's no hope for you if you're a non-sinner. He only dies for the ungodly. He does not die for godly people. There's no hope for your eyes to be opened unless you are blind. If you're not blind, you are not right for the work of God. You are not conditioned for God's intervention. This is why at the very end of this text, you know what he says to the Pharisees? Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you were blind, it wouldn't be a problem, dudes. Your problem is not that you're blind. That's a good thing. I'm so glad you're blind. Your problem is that you think you see. Listen to me. God is not troubled with our sins. He is troubled by our unwillingness to acknowledge our sins. He came for our sins. The very sin is what conditions you to receive God's work. If you won't acknowledge that you are diseased, you can't have hope. You can't be saved. You can't be found. You can't have life and life more abundantly. Our sins he can deal with. What's hard for God to deal with is our unwillingness to know that we need help. That's what God can't deal with. So Jesus said, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't come for those who are well. I came for the sick because only sick people need a physician. But of course, we are all sick. It's just in life, only a few of us actually come to the recognition we're sick before we die. We're, we're deeply sick. So he's offering healing to people who think they're well. Jesus, why would I need my eyes open? I see. Surely we aren't blind, are we? Yes. Yes, you are blind, Pharisees. So throughout this gospel, watch this. You can constantly see these subversions, these ironies, these paradoxes, these challenges. Where, watch this. What you think is happening isn't. And what you think isn't happening is. Why? Because two things. Number one. The fullness of God doesn't look at all like we thought it would look like. Number two, the process of transformation doesn't play out at all like we thought it would play out. Watch this. Jesus is the fullness of God and everyone is disappointed with that. Not one person is happy about that. Jesus is the fullness of God's character in the world, and everybody's disappointed with that. Not just his enemies, not just the Pharisees, his own disciples are disappointed with what he is and who he is. Why? Because when the fullness of God comes in our world, it isn't what we want it to be. Why? Because our wants are diseased. 
Our wants are broken. Our wants are made rotten. Our wants are conflicted. Our wants are broken. When God is present, we don't want to want it. We don't know to want it. We're wanting something else. And then when we finally submit to it as believers and say, all right, God, I'm ready to follow you, whatever it means for me. All right, God, I throw up my white flag. I'm ready to say yes to you, Jesus, whatever it means. Then the process of our transformation doesn't happen like we want it to happen. We want God to heal us and to make us perfect right now. And then we want to dictate the terms of our healing. So we say, God, make me like this. God, heal me like that. God, make me like this person. But it never works that way. Look at me, church. I hate, I don't, I really don't mean to be the bearer of bad news. But I want to tell you, it never works that way. One way of thinking about it is like this. Whatever you are praying for God to do in your life, he won't do. He'll do something better. He won't do it. I followed him now for 20 years. Very rarely will he ever do the thing you ask him to do. Why? Because he means more for you than what you know and dare to ask. He is faithful, but he is not useful. So whatever you're asking for, I just want to tell you, it's not going to happen. Because he's going to do something better. He's going to do something beyond your imagination. Now keep asking. Now this is why Jesus tells us to ask. Because the asking, watch this, is an important posture to live in. But he's not going to do it like you think he is going to do it. Why? Because he is up to something you can't imagine to ask for. What he wants for you is better than you think you deserve. So you wouldn't know to ask for it. Because your wants are broken. Your wants and desires are broken. You would not be able. Why? Because you don't think you deserve it. You don't think you deserve how kind he wants to be with you. So he wants to what? Give us more than what we think, feel, or even dare to imagine. This is what God wants to do. Now, what I love about this man, this blind man, is just his rigorous honesty. But I also love how personal Jesus is when he heals this man. Verse 6 says, when he said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with saliva, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. You go, ew, wouldn't that guy be repulsed? Of course not, he couldn't see what's going on. Makes it kind of fun. Now, without getting too detailed about this, watch this. It would take a lot of saliva to make enough mud to smear on two eyeballs, right? So I'm sure the disciples are like, what are you doing, Jesus? Like, he must have drank a lot of water the night before. He is spitting. Why did he spit on the ground and do it? Commentators for 2,000 years have had all kinds of guesses. Quite honestly, they're pretty lame guesses because they're guesses. But for me, you know what it does? It harkens back to Genesis when God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And I think there's something here because John said, remember, concerning Jesus, without him nothing that was made that has been made. He made eyeballs anyways, didn't he? Did he make all people anyways? Did he made the world anyways? Jesus is the creator and now is the creator. He is recreating eyeballs for this man in the dirt. He is recreating new sight for this man with his own spit and dirt. And he spat on the man's eyes. Now, some people say, well, Pastor Craig, we need to be like Jesus and go back to the New Testament. Well, I have never seen healing ministries ever do it like this, okay? I don't think they're ministry. If you really want to go back to Jesus and be like the New Testament, okay? I've never seen healing conventions where people go to different convention centers and start spitting and putting in people's eyes. 
you'd lose your audience real quick. But he spat, he made clay, and then he said to go wash in the pool of Siloam. It's the pool where the priest went down to the Feast of Tabernacles. The lower city pool of the Gihon Spring, which is the water source of Jerusalem. Still to this day, the water was brought into Jerusalem in the Old Testament by King Hezekiah. He made a tunnel to it, and then a pool was built so people could get water. So he went down to the city, this blind man, to get the water. That's where the pool of Siloam was. Jesus said, go wash. It's translated sent, the pool sent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. So I say that, what? Jesus was absolutely personal about this. He wasn't just urgent, he was personal. Listen, he touched the man with his hands. You ever think about this? He didn't have to touch the man with his hands, right? He could have done it a different way. Let's say you and I are there, right? And Jesus looks at us and he just points and says, be healed. That would have worked, he could have done that. He could have waved his hand, be healed, would have worked. He could have healed the crowd in masses. He could have said, hey, all the paralytics over here, All the blind people you said over here, all the congenital anomalies you said over here, ready? One, two, three. He could have done that. But I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus touched him. And I say that as a setup for what one author wrote. I would like for you to read this with me, see what you think. Jesus' mission was not primarily a crusade against disease, but a ministry to individual people, some of who happened to have a disease. He wanted those people, one by one, to feel his love. Jesus knew he could not readily demonstrate love to a crowd because love involves touching. It's a beautiful thought. Love involves touching. Touching. When you put an arm on a shoulder, when Pastor Craig asks you to do that in our gathering, when we put a hand out and shake it, that embrace, that human touch means so much. And in our hyper-connected digital world that is least connected personal world, the ministry of touch is only going to need to grow in our context. Redemptive touch. Studies have shown of children in our city at a young age, if they don't have touch, it ill-equips them for the rest of their life. The Jesus of the Gospels likes to touch. He's personal. Now, I love this man because he's just honest. You know why I think this man's so honest? Because he didn't have anything else to lose. His own family's abandoned him. So he's just honest. Now, if you've grown up in Pentecostal charismatic circles, we love to talk about miracles as the way that God shows up and proves that he's real. But if you read the Gospels, that's not how miracles work. Now, listen to me. We can make a theology out of that, out of Acts. The miracles to come to bring validity to the word of God. But that's not what happens in the Gospels. Notice what happens. Jesus heals a man born blind. Nobody, nobody, including the man who was healed, believes. They're not even sure it's the same man. I've heard my whole life Jesus did miracles to prove he's the son of God. That's nowhere in the Gospels. Just read them. This, no one believes. The old man who gets healed does not believe. The first argument is, wait a minute. Is this the same man who was blind last week? Some say, no, it's not him. He keeps saying, no, it's me, y'all. Guys, it's me. It's me. It's really me. So Jesus heals the man, and they're not even sure what has happened. And then they get to the theological arguments. And the Pharisees divide in the theological arguments. Here's what they do. Some say, well, clearly he is from God because he opened his eyes. And the others say, well, no, no, no. He did it on the Sabbath day, so that can't be God. So they're fighting. And then the man's parents say, hey, hey, yeah, he can see, but ask him. We want no part of that debate. The man himself does not even know Jesus is the one that healed him. And so they ask him again. Hey, how did he open your eyes? Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? And he says, I don't know what to tell you. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. Which, by the way, is not a confession of faith. 
John Newton, who's a brilliant man, took that word and he wrote Amazing Grace. But that is not a confession of faith. He doesn't even know Jesus is the Messiah here. That is not, in that, in that statement, it is not a confession of submission. He's just being honest. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know who the man is. I wasn't looking for him. I wasn't praying for anything. I was asking for people to drop coins in my cap. And all of a sudden, some guy walked up to me and he put mud on my face. And he said, go wash it off and you'll be able to see. So what did I have to lose? I can't see anything. So I went and I what? I washed in the pool of Siloam. I was invited, so I came. I was invited to do something, so I did what I was invited to do. And listen to me, church, that is actually what faith looks like. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Faith is so tightly bound up, next slide, with just being honest about what is happening in your life. I don't know what God is doing. I have no clue what God is doing. This is what pleases God. Oh, he loves this. I have no idea what God is doing. I'm not going to make some confession of faith like I know what God's doing. I'm not going to spend circumstances to make God look good and try to protect his reputation. I don't know what he's doing, but if he puts mud on my face and tells me to go wash it off, I'll go wash it off. I don't know. What do you want me to tell you? In fact, listen to me, what is so striking about this passage is this man makes three denials. I don't have time to flesh this out. If I had an hour, I would, which are just like the three denials Peter makes. So three times in this passage, the man says, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But it's not faithless denial. It's simple acknowledgement. I don't know what God's doing. And that, my friends, marks an authentically faithful life. Because look at me, church, most of the time in your life, not only will you not know what's happening to you, you really won't know what God is doing in what's happening to you. Faith is not making claims about what you hope is happening. That's not faith. I was taught that my whole life. Oh, just confess good. Confess over your... That's not faith at all. Faith is not spinning. Faith is acknowledging. I don't know what is going on. I don't know what God do is doing, but I what? Trust that he is acting in what is happening. And so what happens? The man can finally see. And the man is now trying to convince everyone else in the story that it's him. Listen to me. Next slide, church. If we knew what God was doing, we would be God. And we would not need God. But needing God is what makes us like God. So you're not going to know what he's doing. But you can trust him. I trust you, God. Oh, my wife. She's prayed one prayer she's prayed in 15 years over me. We've taken each other by the hands. And she, if she's prayed it once, she's prayed it a thousand times with tears flowing down our faces. God, we have no idea what you're doing, but we trust you. And then we just keep saying it. I trust you, God. I trust you, God. I'm not going to spin the circumstances. Life sucks, but I trust you. I'm not going to make a false claim about what I think is happening. I trust you. I have no idea what's happening. And God loves that. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. We need him. Then you have that hilarious scene where he says, <laughs> the man says, Pharisees, I told you this already. Why do you want me to tell you again? Oh, you want to be his disciples too, don't you? 
Now, there's two ways to read this. One, this man is really, really slow, and he legit doesn't understand what their intentions are. Like, he doesn't really. Or number two is that he's really clever, and he's mocking them, which is the one I like. I prefer to think this man is really bright, and he's mocking these people who've marginalized him for 30-something years. Well, all of that builds up into the second confrontation Jesus has with this man. And this, for me, church, is one of, I think, the most striking details in all of the story. Look what verse 35 says. Verse 35 says, Jesus, they threw this man out of the temple, the synagogue. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? He found him. Say that with me. Say, he found him. Now, the first time Jesus is walking along, he just sees him. But this time, Jesus hears they drive him out, and he seeks him out. Jesus finds him to have another conversation with him. And folks, listen to me. This is so crucial to knowing how God works in your life. When we say that God sees us, and we say that God knows us and hears us, and that he seeks us, he is seeking us precisely to heal what has been done to us. So look at me. We're all sinners. Nobody in here is not a sinner. That is true, but there are two deeper realities, deeper than you are a sinner, and you can't forget them. Now, I know in our modern-day preaching, we like to just beat the tar out of people, convince them that they're sinners, but there's two deeper realities. We are sinners. Look at me. I'm not, I'm not, not saying we're not. All of us. That's how we are conditioned to receive the work of God. So if you're not a sinner, you, you have no hope. There's no hope for you for salvation. You are only conditioned to receive the work of God as you sin. But more deeply than we are sinners is we are sinned against. Every human being is born on this planet, comes into the world already the victims of other people's wrongs and other people's sins. All of you here are sinners, all of you, but more deeply than that, all of you are people who have been wronged by others. All of you are people who have been, intentionally or not, whether they knew what they were doing or they had no idea, you have been wronged. You have been sinned against. You're in this room today. You have been abandoned. You have been hurt. You have been lost. You have been cursed. You have been forgotten. But there is another reality deeper than that, and that is that you are known by the God who brings you into being in his love. And he is seeking you, listen to me, not just to deal with your sins only, but what? to more deeply deal with the way you've been sinned against. God seeks you not just to deal with your sins and make you right and have your guilt removed, but more deeply than that, He is seeking you to heal the wounds that have been inflicted in you that give rise to your own sins. So many of your own sins come from the sins that have been committed against you. And when Jesus seeks you out, He doesn't just seek you out to make you righteous. He seeks you out to heal you precisely where you have been wounded that has given rise to the sins that you've committed all your life. And listen to me, listen to me. Any message of the gospel that is only interested in dealing with your sins and not the ways you've been sinned against, it's not the gospel. And you can dismiss it. The gospel first is to deal with the sins against you, what has been inflicted on you. He's coming to know you and to know you in a way that you know you are known. So he asked this man the question. He says, hey man, do you believe? And I love this. My favorite part of the story. He says, do you believe in the Messiah? And the blind man says, well, I would. But I don't know where he is. Show him where he is. Show him to me. I'll believe. And Jesus says, do you get chills at this? Here I am. 
And the text says he knelt down, believed, and worshipped him. What I love about this again, church, is this man is not pretending his way into a better future. He doesn't honestly, you saw, even realize who healed him. He doesn't read between the lines. He's not trying to get the innuendo of God. He just says, well, I would, but I don't know where he is. And this is the way we have to be about God's work in our life. He was invited to believe. I was invited to believe. You were invited to believe. We were invited to a table. We didn't ask to be invited. We didn't seek out the invitation. We didn't want to be healed. We didn't know we were sick. We didn't realize that we needed a healer. We didn't realize we needed a physician. And we were invited. And God is not wanting us to put a positive spin on anything. Faith is not spin. Faith is not claiming. I think God is doing this when you don't know. If you don't know, you say, I don't know. I don't know what God is doing. Faith is saying, God, if if I see it, I'll submit to it. You know what we were telling God right now about the future of our church and about the future of a building? God, we don't know. If you'll make it clear, we'll do it. We're just asking you to make it clear. I'm not going to try to spin it. I'm not going to try to make a decision for you. I'm just telling you, God, if you will show us, we'll do it. Do you know our hearts are for you? Our hearts are submitted to you. Whatever you And the man says, show it to me, and I'll believe. And what does he say? I am he, and the man believes. And then right at that moment, which is true faith, Jesus gives a revelation that for me, I had not seen in years of my life. And this is, this is the point of the story for me. We are at the heart of the paradoxes, heart of the ironies, heart of the subversions. And Jesus says these words, verse 39. I came into this world for judgment in order that those who don't see are going to see. And those who do see will become blind. Now leave that up there, Roman. We know the good news of this, the first one. So that the blind may see. How many of you know that good news? Blind people can see. But how is the second one good news? That he's going to blind those who do see. Watch this. Because we're talking about two kinds of vision. Jesus has come so that those who cannot see what God is doing. And can only see what is happening to them. And can only see the pain that's been inflicted on them. They need to have their eyes open to the kingdom. They need to have their eyes open to the good and the truth. But watch this. Those who cannot see anything but the world and what the world tells them to see. Those who cannot see anything but that which is happening to them. They need to be blinded to all of that to actually see what God is doing. Because the kind of healing God brings doesn't just open us up to the kingdom. It closes us off to the lies of the enemy. Can I show you how this works? Isaiah 42. This is Jesus being spoken of here. I want you to see if you've ever heard Jesus talked about like this. Verse 18. Listen, you deaf. Look, you blind. Do you see the paradox? Listen, you who can't hear. See those who can't see. Who is blind but my servant? That's Jesus. Jesus is blind. Who's deaf like Jesus? My messenger I'm sending. Who is blind like my dedicated one? That's Jesus. When's the last time you got in worship and said, Jesus, you are blind. <laughs> Jesus, you are deaf. Follow me. That's what God says about Jesus. He's blind and he's deaf. What? I have never described Jesus like that. No one's blind like Jesus. No one's deaf like Jesus. Though seeing many things, 
You, Jesus, pay no attention. Though his ears are open, he does not listen. How is this good news? Let me tell you, church, because Jesus, in knowing you, does not see any of the lies and he does not hear any of the lies that you believe about yourself or that people have told you about you. When God knows you, he cannot know you as you want to be known because that's a lie. When God hears you, he cannot hear what you want to say because that's a lie. When God knows you, he doesn't see your image as you've made it on social media. He doesn't see your image as you've made it for the church around you. He doesn't see the image as you have put on. He doesn't see the sin that people have put on you. The stigma or judgment people have put on you. He doesn't hear your negative self-talk. He's deaf to it. He can't see your negative condemnatory tone. He can't hear what you're saying about yourself. Why? Because he sees his word in you and he hears his life about you and he sees his image in you. And when God knows you, he sees only the truth about you. And everything that the enemy has brought in your life by the ways you've been sinned against and the sin that you've committed, God is not interacting with that. He's blind to it and he's deaf to it and he is only interacting with who he made you to be. Listen to me. Don't be afraid. Why? Why? Because you are known by a God who cannot be fooled by your image. And that's good news. He sees past all of your pretensions. He sees past all of your Things that you have absorbed from the lies around you. Everybody in this room has absorbed lies from America. And he doesn't see those. He's blind to those and he's deaf to those. Why? If you can recognize, church, that God and his knowledge of you is more compassionate than you could ever be with yourself. If you could realize that God's knowledge of you is more gentle than you could be with yourself you will finally begin to open up yourself to what God wants to do in your life. You know why? Here's why. Because this is how sin holds us. Sin holds us because we're afraid of the goodness of God. Ultimately, what we are afraid of is we are not who God says we are. We're afraid that we are who we think we might be in our worst moments this past Friday night. We think we think and believe we are our worst moments. That we are, our greatest fear is that we are ugly. And we are who others have said we are in their worst moments. And our worst fear is that we are broken. And that's the deepest truth about us. God doesn't see that. He's blind to that. He is deaf to that. And what he sees is the humanity he created in you. And the identity he's given you. And the future he has for you. And if you can see him knowing you that way, it transforms you. If you can live knowing that you are not who you say you are. And you are not who they say you are. But you are who he says you are. If you can trust that, y'all, it's, it's not easy. That's the, hard, the hardest thing to do in the Christian life is to trust that you are not who your brain tells you you are. There is no greater fight. If you can trust that you are who he says you are, then all of a sudden, you can know the kind of peace that he offers. And it's not peace that's absence and problems. It's a peace that is deep within my soul. So I end... With this. Remember the story of the woman at the well? You remember? 
She brings her water part to get water. Jesus meets her. He talks about living water. Says the husband you're with is not, the man you're with is not your husband. You've actually had five. You're still searching. You remember when she's done? You remember what happens? She goes back to her city. Do you remember what she tells people? If you don't remember, I'll show you. Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. No, he didn't. No, he did not do that. All he said is, the man you are living with now is not your husband. But what she sensed when he said that is that this man knows me. And what set her free, I love this story because she leaves her water pot. She totally forgot everything she'd been doing. She came to the well to get water and then she was known and her life never recovered. The moment you are known by Jesus, he just has to say one thing about you. And when you know that you know that you know you are known and he has love and grace for you, then your life will never recover again. You will never be the same person. My prayer for you this morning is that you will know that you are known and that like that you are just like what God says about you and when you know that you know that you know you are known nothing else matters when this one speaks about you she said come see a man who told me everything no he did not but when you hear Jesus' words and see his eyes You'll know that you're known. And fear finally leaves. I was invited. You were invited. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.